I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I'm so delighted to be talking today with Tara Isabella Burton. She's a contributing editor at The American Interest, a columnist at Religion News Service, and the former staff religion reporter at Vox.com. She is also the author of the novel Social Creature. Her latest book is called Strange Rights. Welcome, Tara. Hi, thank you. Thank you. It's, I'm delighted to be on. You contain multitudes. <laughs> you, you wrote a dishy, fun uh, thriller uh, a couple of years ago, and, and now you have a book that's more in line with your training um, in religious studies. Is that fair uh, to say? Yeah, theology, religious studies, somewhere in that intersection. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Tell me, I mean, tell me about that. Um, so my background is uh, in academic theology. I used to be a, a theologian, uh, and I did my my, uh, my default, my what they call a PhD in the UK. Um, but during that time, I realized that um, the fun the fun thing about a, a doctoral thesis is that maybe three people read it. Like you're just hoping your supervisor <laughs> reads it. And right. I started um, doing journalism. Uh, through the doctoral program, uh, particularly journalism about religion, and realized that it's really nice to have, be able to write for a, a broader audience, for a general audience, and sort of transitioned into writing about religion, uh, at the same time writing uh, novels or a novel. And it's, it's funny because it feels, in, in one way, very disparate to have these two worlds. But on the other hand, I feel like they're quite similar, like with both yes. Social Creature and Strange Rights, I was interested in kind of exploring this sort of world of the internet and mm -hmm. sort of spiritual emptiness in the age of the internet. And um, actually both Social, social Creature starts with a scene um, at a 
a sort of rave that is inspired by the McKittrick Hotel, um, this sort of performance art space where Sleep No More is usually performed in New York. And Strange Rights actually starts also with a rave at the literal McKittrick Hotel, um, <laughs> which was quite an intentional choice to say, like, we're at these bacchanals in New York, sort of searching for meaning, trying to create something. And it's been really fun and rewarding to look in t- at that, those questions I'm interested in from two different angles, a mm-hmm. sort of intense thriller, but also uh, this book, which is a sort of exploration of um, the spiritual but not religious, the religious N-O-N-E-S nuns, the religiously remixed, as I call them, mm-hmm. um, anything in that, um, in the, ever, anything in that wheelhouse. I, I love that you start this book also at McKittrick because you do, I, sometimes I forget that religion, part of religion or the religious feeling is, is the ecstasy, is the joy. And you make that so apparent in, in that opening. And it's, I mean, it's, it's funny because I've, I've gone through, I am a sleep no more, was a super fan. I think still yes. have a connection to that space. And it was something that kind of, I don't know that I would have known or recognized at the time. Like I was studying theology in the sort of academic way and then going to these parties and being really invested in this world and thinking that actually in many ways, um, I was experiencing a sense of searching, a sense of looking for a home or you know, a, a place that can make me feel something, a community. I got involved with other people who were like really into the fandom and, and it became this whole world. And I, I, the more that I started, I think I was writing Social Creature before I started writing Strange Rights, but I was still kind of working in similar spaces in journalism. And it just, it really felt like they were just two sides of the same coin of kind of trying to find something meaningful and something, a sense of connection. Yeah. And so we're supposed to be post-religious, I'm using my air quote figures, Mm -hmm. um, in the 21st century. What is going on? (laughs) Sure. So what I would say is like everyone uh, says, you know, we are post-religious age, we're in a secular age. I don't think that's true at all. Um, What I think we are in and what what I argue in my book is that we're in an anti-institutional religious space. Like religion looks different now. Mm -hmm. Um, Just a couple of like numbers and statistics. So about a quarter of Americans say they're religiously unaffiliated. Um, They don't belong to a traditional organized religion or as we traditionally understand it. Um, however, and that number actually goes up to 36% among people born after 1985. So young millennials and Zoomers, um, you know, massively bigger. Um, also worth saying about uh, queer Americans, it goes up to 46%. So almost sure. double um, the national average. Um, but that said, the religiously unaffiliated um, aren't necessarily uh, not religious or um, not spiritual. 72% of them say they believe in some sort of higher power. And actually 20% of them say they believe in the, the God of the Bible, as the polling terms it. Hmm. So you have people who, who have uh, faith in something, maybe even in faith in a God as um, sort of uh, Judaism and Christianity um, and Islam, but the, the poll, the poll, I think, referred to the Judeo-Christian God, so let's, I'll just use their language, um, says, um, you know, that, that vision of God is some, something that people still worship, still believe in. So, so then the question is, like, what, what are people leaving behind, if not spirituality, if not faith? And I think they're leaving behind 
institutions. And I think there's a lot mm -hmm. of reasons for this. There's a, as I argue, there's a sort of very strong intuitionalist strain in American culture anyway. There's been, you know, from yes. all the great awakenings and things like New Thought, which is sort of the secret, but 19th century, um, <laughs> uh, spiritualism, all of these movements have always been part of the American landscape. You know, every time the, the conversation goes something like this, you know, oh, the, the, you know, no one really believes anything and people will go to these churches <laughs> and it's just, you know, uh, a polite thing you do. We need to bring back like real emotion, real. We need to bring back real faith. And you see this, you know, even in like evangelical revivals of the 19th and 20th century. So part of it's that. Um, part of it is uh, the internet and the yes. kind of cultural shifts that we have um, as, a, as, a, as a culture, especially for those of us who grew up with the internet, um, which I think is a sort of big turning point in, in this tendency where there is such a sort of mix and match approach to culture anyway. There's such a sense and yes. you know, whether it's fan fiction or memes, but the idea that we're not just consumers, um, but we're also kind of consumer creators. And I think that reflects in how we build our spiritual identities now. There isn't a sense of, um, often it's there's sort of scholars will talk about the, um, the Protestant Reformation and the printing press going hand in hand. And the yes. idea is that, you know, um, suddenly uh, there's mass literacy or broader middle-class literacy. You can read a book and you can internalize what it says and you have this sort of inward personal understanding of faith mediated to you by a text that someone else has written and that you can talk about you know the, the protestant ethic and sort of inward uh focuses on salvation and then the sort of less relatively less clericalism than the catholic tradition all coming back to the printing press um i would basically make that analogy uh, analogy that the internet kind of did the same does has done the same thing in yeah. terms of transforming us for this new let's mix let's match it's, in some ways it's a return to almost uh, pre-modern oral traditions where you know you tell a story and everybody tweaks it a little bit um, but it's also in that we can gather digitally and find people who are like yes. us or share our affinities. Um, some, that's something um, that I find you know, at once exciting and like somewhat dizzying that we can kind of create new bonds of community that aren't rooted in like the traditional bonds of community, which might be where you're born, the community around where you're born, where you worship, you know, the, you're less likely to meet your, let's say a romantic partner through friends or family or your right. 40% of couples now meet online uh, every mm -hmm. year. So that's exciting. And then of course there's like late capitalism and the fact yes. that how so much of our identities now are rooted in um, the decisions we make, often the decisions we make and what to buy. But <laughs> the idea that like our sort of self-definition comes from like, we are looking at these media, sorry, these, these uh, media properties. We're getting our news from these sources. I'm yes. Like, sort of person who reads um, Vox, my old employer, or like someone might be the sort of person who reads uh, Colette. Uh, that's sure. certainly a personal brand, that is a I'd say. That choice. is a strong choice. Um, <laughs> but I think that, again, our religious identities become more and more bound up in the sense of what we, what we choose, our desire to mix and match. The term that I like is um, from Casper uh, Tricoyla and Angie Thurston, who are two Harvard Divinity School scholars who talk about it as unbundling. They compare unbundling. it to like your cable, your cable package. <laughs> you have one package, you got, you know, your HBO channel and your Showtime, and I don't know the names of any other channels, but you, you get the drift. Yeah, and now we have so many different um, streaming services that yeah. we, we are completely unbundled. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, and, and the idea, too, that, that as we are 
you know, this with the streaming service, what you watch means it affects the algorithm of what yes. you're suggested to watch. And so your choices kind of take you further and further down this rabbit hole where you, what you see, what you consume is personalized and tailored to you. And for someone who, for example, let's say they're raised Jewish or Christian, and sure, they'll like, go Christmas and Easter or the high yeah. days with their family, yep. but also maybe they're um, doing a Zen Buddhist meditation app. Maybe they're mm -hmm. doing yoga. Maybe they're reading tarot cards. Maybe they're going to soul, soul cycle or, or something in that vein. And so the kind of building blocks of, of religious life, um, I argue meaning, uh, you know, why, why, what's, what's yes. it all for and purpose, like what am I for and community, self-explanatory and ritual are all things that we don't even necessarily get from the same place. Um, there isn't a holistic, like it's right. not a one-stop shop. Right. And yeah, that, that definition of religion is, feels so important because once you, once I um, was able to understand these four principles, it's easy to see how, in my regular life, I, I have found all of these other outlets. Um, and, you, and you talk about so many different subcultures and communities with such empathy. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a world that especially like in New York that I, you, you do meet people from a variety of, you know, I, I probably know more witches than Christians uh, mm -hmm. in New York, at least socially, maybe that maybe it's about 50-50 now. Um, but I am, I'm so interested. And I think that there's a, a kind of danger um, in writing about these, um, these groups. Um, and particularly because I am, I think, quite critical of the sort of capitalist model that sort of commodifies wellness or commodifies, um, right. you know, even like witch culture as a brand. Right. Um, I think that there's a narrative and sometimes like um, more conservative outlets that have thus far read the book are like, want to run with this where like kids these days are so selfish, yes. like these millennials, they're so solipsistic. And um, I think that's quite an uncharitable reading of yeah. the phenomenon because the way I see it is like, institutions have catastrophically failed us like uh, the catholic church sex abuse scandal or you know um the alliance of white evangelicals with the trumpist gop or even like if we're not talking about um about uh, religious institutions like certainly our, our democratic norms seem to have failed us our yeah. uh, political system our our media um there's such widespread public distrust of almost every institution yes why if you can't trust anyone else if you don't feel you can, which I think is a perfectly um, understandable impulse, then this sort of inward turn to intuitionalist uh, religion, as I call it, it, like makes total sense. Like, why wouldn't you turn inward? Why wouldn't you, you know, focus on your, your wants and your desires and your beliefs as um, authoritative? And I think that um, the story I want to tell isn't a story of like, selfish millennials being <laughs> narcissists. It's a story of people, many of whom were um, or feel themselves to be and indeed are marginalized from traditional religious spaces, uh, yeah. queer people, um, women, particularly uh, women who don't, uh, let's just say, see themselves reflected in the gender binary expectations yes. of traditional uh, Christianity as often practiced in this country. I won't say traditional Christianity because I make the point that it's not the case. Um, but certainly American, uh, American Christianity. Um, you know, 
these these whether whether it's sort of modern witchcraft um which and, and witch activism or it's sort of social justice as a kind of um quasi-religious movement as something that gives you a sense of meaning and purpose like yes yes these are these are spaces that exist because traditional spaces have failed yes um and i i i love that you can make the you know soul cycle has soul right in the name <laughs> and you know goop is selling all sorts of products but wellness culture is so tied to to capitalism yeah and yet there are people who it, it satisfies and makes happy and i yeah i mean i think that's such a a, a difficult sort of uh dynamic like it almost it, for so many of these these groups and the this phenomenon i write about there is such a sort of love-hate relationship with capitalism with like neoliberalism with the idea of like us as being you know individuals who who can make all these free choices including like free choices as consumers mm -hmm. and so much like i think about wellness a lot in this because a lot of the buzzwords of wellness are about like authenticity yes or, or sort of time for yourself or leisure. Self care. Exactly. And those, those words make sense or make most sense given that a lot of these are expensive and require, if not um, money, then time, which is also not something that people sort of uh, necessarily have a lot yeah. of. And so it becomes this weird, like, you can work hard so that you can take your money and your time and spend it on an authentic experience or the image of an authentic experience, you know, your super pure, sweet, sweet, sweet green salad. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> um, and then you, you know, you're refreshed, you're rejuvenated, you've had your authentic moment and you go back and therefore you can go and work harder and do it all again. And on the one hand, it's easy to kind of roll your eyes and say like oh this is just capitalist and it is bad but also there is a very real hunger for something that is authentic something that is real there is a i think a, a very profound sense that a lot of people have that the the world of capitalism is uh, a world that is inherently alienating and so there's sort of all these ways that i think people try to get out of it or try to escape it but because we live in this world and because um corporations uh, are so able to monetize um, and use these uh, impulses for their own ends, it then becomes sort of commodified. Like I'm just thinking, for example, of um, I, my favorite example of this is, is do you, did you ever know the, um, the Red Door Salon, the Elizabeth Arden? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that was all, you know, so much of the um, rhetoric around that the imagery was about glamour and mm -hmm. beauty and like a certain kind of wealth um in 2018 it's now closed down but in 2018 i believe maybe 2019 it switched to might it mynd that was the rebrand and the whole rebrand was oh. your self-care journey a self-care wow. journey you can really say is truly my just like the most awkward tagline ever mind I mean, <laughs> mind. It's mind um and i just thought that was such an interesting sort of example of how you know the asp our sort of cultural aspirations have changed in the way in which corporations want to brand things they don't necessarily brand things as sexy or right um explicitly okay it's not explicitly about wealth or sexiness it's more explicitly about self-care and yes. virtue and goodness but it's still also a little bit about wealth <laughs> i mean how, yeah. how could it not be 
Um, another um, area that you talk about, which I've been thinking about a lot lately, is is fandoms mm. and how the internet brings people together and lets them build, add on to the worlds that have already been built and remix the canonical with the... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was thinking about this a lot week watching sort of... Uh, after J.K. Rowling's uh, transcript yes. tweets and then for doubling <laughs> down. Now, I think there's a, there's a sort of world in which uh, a response might be something like, let's not read her books anymore, you know, Harry Potter is dead to us. But instead, it seemed that so many fans were saying things along the lines of like, well, it's not her world, it's our world. We don't yes. need J.K. Rowling's Harry Hogwarts. We have our own Hogwarts now. Let's write and read more fan fiction. Let's um, kind of enjoy this world without the creator. And I think that's so telling in part because Harry Potter has always been a bit of a kind of cultural canary in the coal mine for the development of fandom. Um, a fun fact uh, that I always like is that between 1997 and 2000, which is between the first and fourth Harry Potter book publications, at-home internet use went from 19 million to 100 million in America. Yes. So like the rise of personal internet and the kind of internet culture was directly correlated with this cultural phenomenon and at every stage the harry potter sort of led the way for fan fiction and thinking about kind of remixing texts then um the sort of development of forums and and also the way in which um kind of cultural properties can become and particularly non-religious cultural properties yeah can become these kind of sacred texts in and of themselves um more um more people probably know the name of the Harry Potter houses and the four gospels, um, which is to say that's, that's the number of people who know the four gospels or percentage rather um, versus the number of people who've seen or read at least one Harry Potter movie or book. Right. So suddenly it's like, you know, these are our cultural touchstones. You know, this is how we talk about, you know, someone a Slytherin or someone a Gryffindor. Everyone knows that, that, what that means. What that means. And it's, yeah, it's been really, inspiring to see groups like the Harry Potter Alliance and all of these other fan communities yeah. that have gone on to make something really beautiful out of yeah out of something that is increasingly ugly in the creator's mind yeah absolutely and i just think it's it's so sort of striking and fascinating that you know it's it, it there's a, that we don't feel culturally um, obligated to sort of respect a creator's wishes. There's not a sort of authoritarian sense of um, top-down hierarchy. You know, this person is the writer. This person has a certain authority. It's they have said something, and now we are all reworking it in our own way. And as I said earlier, you know, that's that's also the sort of pre-literary tradition. You know, yes. whether it's the you know the the various sort of Greek myths being told and retold in different ways, different variants of the Arthurian myth. And I, I actually find that so exciting to think it about um, that creative force. It is. Um, okay, so now we're going to take a, a, a turn mm -hmm. um, and talk about some of the um, less exciting <laughs> uh, religious-ish groups that mm -hmm. you talk about, including, you call them the atavists. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so I use that term to talk about a kind of range of reactionary, mostly male uh, groups and people from like Jordan Peterson on the still pretty right wing, but like possibly within like 
bounds of normalcy ish that was sort of it was this was written before he uh, went into into like a meat coma um and the sort of alt-right on the other end of the fringe but groups of people who i think again possibly think of themselves as opposed to all the phenomena i talk about they they'll talk about you know tradition and returning back to the good old days where like some sort of hybrid mashup of ancient greece as seen through like hercules legendary journeys and 1950s america where you know men were men and women were women and people knew their place with all of the uh racial and gendered and uh uh with all the bigotry that that implies yes yes Uh, yeah, Lots the, of bigotry. The, the subtext is text. Um, <laughs> but there's a, a sort of, whether it's eating an all-meat diet or um, kind of embracing a kind of evo-psych vision of, uh, say, scientifically dubious evo-psych vision of humanity where, like, biology says that, like, men want to have multiple sex partners and women shouldn't, and here's what that means. And <sighs> I think that these groups sort of, what I find so fascinating is that once they would, they would say like, oh, the, the evil feminist politically correct establishment has made the world terrible and we're trying to go back and get away from this modern world. And yet the ways in which they manifest that desire, whether it's posting on 4chan and Reddit, um, Mm -hmm. like the red pill, um, men's rights subreddits, or whether it's, um, you know, taking supplements from Alex Jones, they're doing the same thing. They're doing the same kind of mm-hmm. self-help, turning inwards, self-improvement thing that Gwyneth Paltrow is doing. Uh, Alex Jones and Gwyneth Paltrow actually sell chemically right. identical supplements. It's the same yes. thing with just different branding. Um, but I think that that said, uh, certainly there are um, spillovers of this kind of bizarre kind of combination of, of toxic ideology with sort of faux nostalgia for imagined past with a kind of weird internet nihilism where like nothing matters let's burn it all down because the world is empty to us that can lead over and spill over into real life and has spilled over into into real world violence and and so that is something that is perhaps distinct to to this group among among the groups I write about but I think that what I find so interesting is that an odd consensus uh, that I think one can one can identify while still being extremely extremely condemnatory of this group i think that there's there's an awareness more broadly shared that our our institutions have failed us that yes. our whether it is again political establishment um journalistic establishment um academic establishment in some ways um and i think that I know it is, it is telling that there's on the, this idea that is so shared, some, some kernel of an awareness that our systems are broken. Mm-hmm. And how do, we, how do we deal with that? And it is as true from, you know, it, it, is, it is, we see on sort of among progressives, um, and on, uh, whom I count myself one, yeah. uh, certainly this awareness that like, yes, the system is broken. Like, we, we all seem to agree that the system yeah, is broken here. Um, it's just, you know, the, the sheer variety of, of interpretations why mm-hmm. uh, and how opposite those can be is, is, is also telling. Hmm. Tell me that you, you don't hit on this in, in the book, but I'm just curious about Tell me where QAnon falls into all of this. Sure. So there, there yes, they, 
uh, another group that I think could have made it in. There's always, you know, especially with, uh, with book timing, there's so much more that, that happened the past <laughs> year that's not in the book. Um, yes. But I think that these sort of conspiracy theories more broadly yes. um, come from this place, again, of like co- complete breakdown of trust combined mm-hmm. with, I think, this distinctively American sense that like, we are so powerful that if we just look inward, like we can figure it out. Cause it's not just yeah. the world is broken. Like that sucks. What do we do? Just go on with it. Which is often like, I think accounts of, um, you know, um, Soviet era disillusionment or, or a response to kind of disinformation in that context often yes. seem to have lent itself to this kind of resigned fatalism where like, we all know that we are in a sort of false world, but, but what's to be done. And yet I think that the sort of quintessentially American narrative that like, if you just focus, you can figure it out. You could be the hero. You could be yeah. the, the, that Nick Cage character. And I'm forgetting the movie now, but like the guy who figures it all out. The guy who um, figures it all out. Oh no, it's not Nick Cage. It's um, Die Hard. You know, uh, Bruce, oh, Bruce Willis. There we go. There we go. There you go. Easy mistake to make. A good um, cop. <laughs> um, oh gosh, I even forgot about that. Um, but this, the, it is that sort of like, well, if I, you know, the, the media can't figure it out and the, the journalists can't figure it out and politics positions can't figure it out. But I, with like yes. my YouTube connection, yes. I can figure it out. And that is, I think, so quintessentially American. Mm. Tara, tell me what you've enjoyed reading lately, both as a theologian and as a novelist. Sure. So I just read a book um, that came out a couple of weeks ago by um, Ambra Salam called Belladonna and it is uh, fascinating. So it's, it's about um, a love triangle with, among three women in 19, uh, two American art students and a uh, nun in, um, or, uh, in uh, 1950s Italy. And it's Ooh. great and it's, it's, it deals a lot with um, questions, not just, uh, it, it's sort of this sort of quintessential first first love summer novel, but extremely subversive it, dealing with queer desire. It deals a lot with uh, race and racial politics, both the, the protagonist and um, the, the nun are, are um, mixed. And um, the, the protagonist is, is sort of hiding this fact. She's, she's uh, half Egyptian, half uh, American. And hmm. um, there's a sort of, sort of d- interesting doubling that goes on with um, sort of different characters, relationships to their identities. And it's just beautifully written. I read it in one sitting. So that is my, um, that is my recommendation on fiction. Um, As a uh, nonfiction, I'm reading um, Jack Jenkins's American Prophets, which also just came out, which is a study of the religious left in America and an argument that we don't, um, that that there is a resounding, not as big as the religious right, but a a strong politically motivated religious left in America and always has been. And so that's uh, an argument that I'm very Uh, glad to see someone make and then I think Jack does really a really good job of making amazing thank you so much oh thank you thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts